from Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. Today, we're talking about extending life, how nature does it, and how humans might do it. Our first guest investigates the ways animals evolve to beat deadly natural chemicals. Our second guest studies natural chemicals that might help prevent aging and put off death. The quantitative ecologist and the biochemist. That's Undisciplined. This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. The concept of this show is simple. Each week we bring together two researchers from different fields. We ask them to tell us about their work and then we introduce them to one another. We've been doing this for a few months now and a few things are becoming clear, but nothing more than this. When you put smart and interesting people in a room together, amazing things happen. And that's what we've done today. Joining us today is Grace Dorenzo, whose recent study in ecological applications tells the story of a community of frogs in Panama that was decimated by a deadly fungus, but eventually developed the capacity to coexist with the thing that was killing them just a decade earlier. She's a postdoctoral researcher at the University of California at Santa Barbara, and you've just got to see her oil-on-canvas amphibian version of Edward Munch's The Scream. Hey, Grace, how you doing? Good morning, Matthew. I'm so happy to be here with you today. Also with us today is Laura Niedernhofer, whose recent study in the journal eBiomedicine reveals that a relatively common chemical found in many fruits and vegetables can extend lifespans and health in mice. She's the director of the Brand Spankin' New Institute on the Biology of Aging and Metabolism at the University of Minnesota Medical School, and she's recently been named the recipient of the Vincent Cristofalo Rising Star Award in Aging Research from the American Federation for Aging Research. Laura, thanks for joining us on Undisciplined. Matthew, thank you so much for having me. It's a delight. First up today, the quantitative ecologist. So the kind of control you're attempting is... Uh... It's not possible. Listen, if there's one thing the history of evolution has taught us, it's that life will not be contained. Life breaks free, it expands to new territories, and it crashes through barriers painfully, maybe even dangerously, but, uh, well, there it is. You're implying that a group composed entirely of female animals will breed? No, I'm, I'm simply saying that life uh, finds a way. That is the voice of the always sexy Jeff Goldblum delivering one of the key takeaways in the 1993 blockbuster Jurassic Park, Life uh, Finds a Way. And that, my friends, is what my first guest research is teaching us. The story behind her recent paper in ecological applications starts in 2004 when a fungus ran rampant through Panama, killing off about half of the frog species it came into contact with. And that was devastating. But fast forward a few years, and this absolutely amazing thing happened. Somehow, the frogs have learned to coexist with the fungus, and infected frogs now survive at nearly identical rates compared to uninfected frogs. Grace Dorenzo, give us a little background here. Can you talk a bit about this fungus and what it did when it was unleashed in Panama back in 2004? Yes. So back in 2004, the researchers and my colleagues had been surveying this population of frogs since 1998. So they had a pretty good foundation of how many species were there and what their abundances were. And from stories that I've heard, it it was pretty difficult to walk around without stepping on a frog. When I arrived at the site, I could barely even find a frog. And that was back in 2010. So my big questions were, are these populations drifting to extinction or are they 
coexisting with this very virulent fungus, which is known to cause death in uh, many species. Now, a lot of people knew that this fungus had killed off a lot of frogs, but that's sort of where the story ended for a lot of folks. You said you wanted to know what happened to the frogs that remained. How did you think to ask that question? So I had visited this site with um, Karen Lips, one of my collaborators, and they were still around, and they didn't seem to really be going anywhere. And so I was thinking, like, maybe we're not noticing these sorts of slow declines. And so that's where, that's where my beginning questions started to stem from. Okay, so marvelously and really, really meticulously, you and your colleagues, you went back to the same small patch of land in Panama, this perfect fungus breeding ground, each year from 2010 to 2014, and you started catching frogs? I mean, I got this picture in my head of people running around the forest chasing these little guys around. How, how do you do this? We have established transects, and so a transect is just standardized. And it's marked every 20 meters, so you know exactly where you're catching the frog. So you slowly walk up and down these uh, transects, and it's really hard to see the frogs because they're about maybe two inches, and the green ones, uh, the green frogs are obviously on green leaves, and the brown frogs are obviously down on the leaf litter in the mud. So you walk really slowly and you try to see everything you can see, but obviously we're missing stuff. So what I do is also develop models that can help us sort of estimate how many animals are we missing and how many species are we missing when we walk these transects. So by repeatedly surveying the same site over a close period of time, you can estimate a detection probability. Okay, and what you found along the way was that a lot of these frogs were infected, but somehow, as the years went by, they were, they were surviving. About 98% of the frogs that we found had less than 100 spores on them, and 100 spores is not a lot. It's a skin disease that eventually blocks osmoregulatory functions and respiration, and so you can kind of imagine them having a heart attack. So typically, animals start dying when they reach thousands of spores on them. Okay, so I know we're supposed to like have this scientific, you know, distance from the subjects that we study, but don't you just feel horrible for the frogs when this is happening? Absolutely. And then when you walk up these transects, you can only imagine what used to be there and what could be there now. It's really sad. But it seems like your study gives us reason for hope, right? Because these frogs, they've learned to coexist with this fungus in some way. What's happening here? Is this evolution in action? Is it co-evolution in action? What's your theory about what's going on? I have two theories about what potentially could be going on. So it could be an ecological mechanism that's leading to this coexistence. The transmission rate could be high just because of sheer density, Another idea is that there could be a species out there similar to a typhoid mary where they're just like spewing tons of spores and infectious particles into the environment and infecting the majority of other individuals. So it's kind of difficult to disentangle the ecological mechanisms. But it could also be evolutionary. Because of the advances in molecular techniques, we've been able to see that a lot of these animals are changing their genetic structure, genetic diversity, after the chytrid fungus wiped out a community. 
they're either resistant or tolerant to the fungus now. And is the next step to try to answer that question, or are there other questions that you have that you want to answer first? I feel like that would be the next step, is trying to disentangle. Is it evolutionary or ecological that's leading to this coexistence? To do that, we would need to use animals from the field and get their sort of genetic makeup to see if it's changed or what genes are upregulated or downregulated that allow them to persist with the fungus. Now, this fungus, it sounds awful. Where did it come from? Recently, a paper came out saying that it originated in Asia. In that part of the world, they have found very high diversity of this fungus. So through globalization and international trade, the fungus has been able to spread everywhere. And in areas where you have high genetic diversity, you could potentially get a genetic recombination or the fungus is picking up genetic material from other organisms and becoming virulent and, and just it's spreading. Tell me a little bit about your background. Did you get into frogs by way of studying disease, or did you start studying disease because of your interest in herpetology? So I started studying via frogs, and then I learned about the chytrid fungus. That's where my, my passion in, in this area started. You're a frog person. Yes. Yes, I am. That's Grace Dorenzo, whose recent study in ecological applications tells us that at least when it comes to frogs in Panama, life finds a way. Grace, I can't wait to introduce you to our next guest. Can you hold on the line while I chat with her? Of course. Next up, the age-related disease biochemist. If there was an award for training montage songs, you'd be hard-pressed to find a more worthy tune than Fall Out Boy's Immortals from the 2014 film Big Hero 6. And while immortality might be a ways off, my next guest is part of a growing network of scientists who are going to battle with age-related deterioration and disease. And to that end, her latest study in the journal eBiomedicine tells us that mice treated with a common natural chemical were healthier and lived longer, in part because physidin helps clear the body of senescent cells, which release enzymes that can cause inflammation and which can degrade tissue and cause aging. Laura Niedernhofer, before we can get into what this study showed, maybe a quick primer is in order on what senotherapeutics are and why it might be a really good idea if we could find some natural ones. Senotherapeutics are a brand new class of drugs designed to specifically kill unhealthy senescent cells. So these are cells that we know accumulate in our bodies as we get older. And they're basically stressed out cells and they're sending out sort of alarm signals, and they can damage neighboring tissue and cause a lot of chronic inflammation. So the thought process is if we could clear those from our body, we might slow down the aging process. So it's been, I don't know, like about 15 years since Fisodin was first shown to extend the lifespan of yeast cells. But then it seemed like aging researchers started looking other places. Why did this chemical fall off the map? And what made you want to look at it again? Good question. Um, there's 
some anecdotal stories out there that facetin can slow dementia and has some benefits in cancer. So it's linked to age-related diseases. The reason we really got initially interested is the very first senolytics we discovered were identified through bioinformatics. So we started to figure out what's unique about senescent cells that we could target to specifically kill them and leave the healthy cells behind. And it turns out there's some pathways that keep those senescent cells alive. And if we could target those specifically, we could kill them. Two drugs that target those pathways, one is a cancer drug called desatinib, and another one turned out to be a flavonoid called quercetin. And facetin is just a cousin of quercetin, so it was kind of a natural leap to, to focus on it. So senescent cells are often called zombie cells, so I'm going to make a little undead analogy here. How big of an effect did facetin have? Was it like a total zombie destruction, or did it just take out some of the zombies? Just a few of the zombies, actually, and, and that's good news, because if you think about the analogy of cancer, to cure a cancer, you literally have to get rid of every cancer cell in your body, and that's been the challenge. So with senescent cells, all we have to do is, is knock a few of the zombies out and get down to a level that inflammation kind of dwindles and sort of their havoc is lessened to a tolerable standpoint. And can you tell me about the mice? Was the effect significant enough that you could see a difference in the test mice and the control mice? So we used two different models. One is a mouse model of a human progeroid syndrome, or disease of accelerated aging. And in those mice, we measure health span. So they get symptoms very quickly, like tremors, sort of an unsteady gait. They lose muscle mass and have trouble hanging on to a bar. And in that case, the facetin really improved all of these collective symptoms and made them much healthier. The other part of the study that I'm really excited about was we took old, normal mice. And when we gave them facetin, we actually extended their lifespan by 15%. But more importantly, we got rid of a number of age-related symptoms and pathologies. And so that had a big impact in old mice, which is important because that's analogous to how we would see using these um, class of drugs in humans. Now, people get really excited about anti-aging molecules, especially when you start talking about like maybe using them in humans. But we always need to put this into perspective. Mice appear to live longer and healthier lives when they're treated with facetin. But what would it take at this point to now be able to say the same for humans? What are the next steps? There are some hurdles, and so you raise a very good point. Currently, there's no way to truly develop a drug to treat aging because aging is a universal process. It's not a disease. So the Food and Drug Administration in the federal government that regulates drug development doesn't really have a mechanism for designing a clinical trial to test a drug targeting aging processes. But there's light at the end of the tunnel here, and that is the FDA has been working with some of my colleagues to design the very first proof-of-principle clinical trial to really ask, can you target fundamental mechanisms of aging? So this trial is planned, and we're searching for funding to support it. And once that has been executed, then it will be possible to test all sorts of drugs that target aging or senescent cells. That's the uh, near Barzillai metformin trial that you're talking about, yeah? That's it, yes. It's called the TAME trial, T-A-M-E, for targeting aging with metformin. Now, you tested 10 different flavonoids. Fizidin had the most significant effect. Did the others impact cellular senescence at all? We tested them at one concentration, looking for the most active compound. 
So facetin certainly fell in that category, but the other ones certainly do have some activity. And you recently began work as the director of the Institute of Biology of Aging and Metabolism at the University of Minnesota. How's it been so far, and what are we going to be seeing from the aging-focused medical discovery teams in the year to come? Well, thank you for asking. We're hoping to build a group of scientists that are really interested in studying fundamental mechanisms that drive aging. We think it's really going to be important to consider this as a target for therapeutics going forward because we're really facing at the world population level this huge number of elderly, most of which whom will all have age-related diseases. So we want to learn more about aging, get a lot of people excited about becoming geriatricians and helping the elderly and finding therapeutic approaches to keep us all healthier in old age, not necessarily living longer. That's Laura Niedernhofer, whose recent study in the journal eBiomedicine reveals that if you want to go to war with zombie cells, a very common naturally occurring molecule might be your best weapon. Laura, I've had another awesome scientist listening into our conversation. Would you like to chat with her? Absolutely. Well, then, Laura, I'm so excited to introduce you to quantitative ecologist and a very good friend of frogs, Grace Dorenzo. And Grace, this is biochemist and enemy to zombie cells, Laura Niedernhofer. Hi, Laura. Hi. I have to say, I think you're doing incredibly important work. I think of frogs as really sentinel in telling us how our planet's doing. I came to Minnesota from Florida, and all I know is that the frogs there could always tell us when bad weather was coming. Thanks, Laura. Um... I don't think a lot is known about Florida in terms of the chytrid fungus, and the United States has been kind of a new place where people are seeing this coexistence as well as in Panama. But we think that the chytrid fungus has been here a lot longer than in Panama. That's a scary thought. That is a really potent fungus. (laughs) It is. It is. So I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about your research as well, because I feel like, so your work with anti-aging, but then my work is with a skin fungus. And so the skin fungus is damaging cells, skin cells on the exterior. And so do you see any sort of possible therapeutic coming out of, correct me if I, if I mispronounce it, bisotine to work with frogs? You know, it's, it's a good question, but I think what we're learning in, in both of our studies is that Mother Nature is pretty powerful. <laughs> so we're, we've got an, you know, an anti-aging therapeutic coming from fruits and vegetables, and your fungus is like one of the most potent poisons out there. It's hard to imagine that, that chemists could do a better job than just simply Mother Nature, right? Yes. It's hard to think about therapeutics for frogs. I'm thinking more in terms of targeting that fungus and trying to get rid of it. Have you thought about that? So a lot of researchers are working on that. And so, let's see, like some people are thinking about spraying microbes, antifungal microbes into the environment, but that comes with a load of other issues. But the only real way that we've been able to target the fungus is by finding frogs and dipping them into antifungal baths because we don't know if there's sort of an environmental resting stage for the fungus. And so most people try to focus on therapeutics for the frogs, and in that way we can eradicate the fungus theoretically, 
But if by any chance it grows in moss, let's say, or in biofilms, then it would be a, a much bigger problem and more, much more difficult to eradicate. Right, right. So the other thing that struck me about your study that's really interesting is the possibility that the frogs have evolved, so changed their genetic code to actually adapt to tolerate or resist this fungus. We have the opposite problem, and that is there is no way for humans or any other species to adapt to aging. You can't select for genes that are going to keep you healthy past your reproductive years. So we are stuck with our problem, and we've got to find a way around it without genetics. That's so interesting. I'm really curious about what you said. So there's no aging gene per se. So are you starting to move toward a universal theory about why we are aging? If it's not genetic, but it does happen, it happens in pretty much every organism, what's the cause? Well, the, the field's been, you know, at debating this for, for decades, really. And I think sort of the universal concept, it's, it's an accumulation of random damage that happens to your cells or the organelles in your cells or even biomolecules. And just over time, you get to a point where there's enough of that damage that a cell has to either choose to commit suicide or to become senescent and sort of a zombie cell that's, that's bad for you. But it's interesting because it, I think we don't have all the answers yet. I think ultimately you get to a state where sort of everything goes wrong and we have to figure out ways to prevent that happening or to therapeutically target these processes before you get to that state. Grace, do you have any idea what frogs die of when fungus doesn't get them? Do they die of old age? When a fungus doesn't get them. Oh, goodness. So I know in Panama, at least, there's predators. So like snakes and birds will eat frogs that aren't poisonous. So they could just be knocked out of the population through that. They do lay a lot of eggs, but then a lot of those eggs don't make it to adulthood. So then there's a selection process there. We don't know a lot about tropical frogs because it's very difficult to find them. In certain parts of the year, we don't even know where they go because we can't reach them, and it's very difficult to, to study those frogs, um, or even the ones that, that are down in the streams, but then they go up, up into the trees. So it's very difficult to say what they die of. I've never seen, per se, an old frog, or I can't even tell you what an old frog looks like. And I've been in the jungles for a while. We don't know how long these animals live for. That's really interesting because that's where we get a lot of our information about the answer to your question, why do we age, is by looking between species because there are some that appear not to age. So they're, the only cause of death is really through predators. And even like, for instance, sea urchins, you can have some that live 50 years or you can have some that live 400 years and they don't appear to age. They're just targeted by predators. So really looking at all the diverse species on this planet is, has taught us a lot about aging. Now, when you say a sea urchin doesn't age, I feel like that's really fascinating. Like, their organs and their external structures don't age. Like, they look just as, I'm going to use the word, quote-unquote, young, as they did when they were, like, let's say five, as they do when they're 40. They do, actually. And one of the ways we, we measure this or, or think about it is they're able to regenerate their spines. So if something is broken, they can still fix it. But you think about an older 
human being and they have trouble with wound healing or recovering from surgery or a fracture. So clearly these sea urchins and a number of other species are actually quite useful into old chronologic age. So do you think your work will expand into using, I'm going to say, basal organisms such as sea urchins or frogs, maybe even salamanders, and look at their aging process or how they, they cope with damaged cells? Yes, actually, that's been a huge priority for the National Institute of Aging, which is part of the National Institute of Health. So we use a number of different species to study aging and for very different purposes. So cross-species analysis to figure out what causes longevity. And this can be anything from bowhead whale, which are the longest-lived mammals, to the naked mole rat, which is a rodent that lives for decades. And then we also use different animal models for testing therapeutic interventions or genetic interventions to test hypotheses about why we age. So in that case, you want shorter-lived vertebrates, such as killifish, and then the shortest-lived primate is the marmoset. So we have a lot of variety in our work, but I don't know of anybody who's working on frogs. (laughs) You guys, I said at the top of the show that when you put interesting people in a room together, amazing things happen. But unfortunately, one of the things that happens is that we run out of time. Grace Dorenzo, thanks for joining us on Undisciplined. Thank you for having me, Matt. And Laura Niedernhofer, thank you. Thank you, Matthew. Really enjoyed it. If you'd like to participate in this discussion, you can engage with us on Twitter by following us at SoUndisciplined. Undisciplined is produced by Utah Public Radio. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.